Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Good morning, church. Man, is it ever good to see all of you here today. We're very grateful to have guests with us today. We appreciate your presence here at the great church. We want you to know uh, that uh, we believe you've come home. And even if you're visiting from out of town and just passing through on business or something, we know that after your time with us here today experiencing the love uh, that is present in this congregation and the spirit that is here among us, we know that you're going to want to just pack up, get a new job, move to this area, and become a part of this church. And uh, we don't blame you because many of us have done the same thing. So uh, good to have everyone here today, and it's exciting to be able to be in the presence of God to worship Him. When you come together, this is the series that we have uh, been focusing on for a couple of weeks, the church at worship. I want to say in the beginning that uh, there are right ways to worship, and there are wrong ways to worship. And when we say this, uh, when we talk about someone that may not be worshiping in a right way, we're not impugning that person's character. We're not saying that they're any worse people than anybody else. We're not trying to be insulting, not insulting their intelligence. We're simply saying that the Bible teaches us how God wishes us to worship Him. And if worship is to be right, that is to be acceptable to God, we need to do it according to the teaching of His Word. We just sang that song, which we usually uh, sing before the Lord's Supper, but considering the nature of our series, focusing on worship, uh, I, I wanted us to sing that before the sermon today. And there's part of the chorus that says, Help us, Lord, thy love to see. May we all in truth and spirit worship thee. And, and as we go through our thoughts this morning, I, I think that the admonition of that line in that hymn is going to be, it's going to be something I'm hoping we're all going to recognize as we think about the passage in the Bible from which the phrase you see on your screen comes from. The, the title phrase of this series, When You Come Together, actually comes from several passages in the book of 1 Corinthians. And that context leads specifically to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We often call 1 Corinthians 13 the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 14 is the worship chapter. Now, in saying that, we're not saying that it's the only place in the Bible where worship is being talked about. That certainly isn't true. But there is no place in the Bible in which worship is more specifically focused on in the New Testament than in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And so uh, we want to think about 1 Corinthians 14 both uh, this morning and then again this evening at 6 p.m. First of all, let's look at the chapter in its context. Now I'm going to trust that everyone here is a person who takes Bible study seriously and that you read your Bible on your own. And I know that most of you do. And uh, some of you that may not be in the practice of reading and studying the Bible for yourself, I want to encourage you uh, to join in with all of us in making that a very central part of your life. And so one thing I'm not going to do either this morning or tonight is read the whole of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 to you. 
for the sake of time, I'm going to trust that many of you, most of you perhaps are familiar, at least basically familiar with 1 Corinthians 14. And those of you that may not be, that maybe this afternoon you'll go home and say, wow, that preacher said some really awesome stuff about 1 Corinthians 14. Maybe I ought to read the whole chapter. And I hope to give you some things this morning to think about as you read through the chapter to help you interpret it properly so that it can be, become a basis for you to worship God acceptably. So the, the context of which 1 Corinthians 14 is kind of the capstone begins a few chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, the context about the assembly. Now the word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Uh, and it means literally an assembly. Now some folks make a big deal about the etymology of that word which I'm not going to get into. But by the first century when folks used the word ekklesia it meant an assembly. A group of people that were called out into an assembly together. And so sometimes when I was a kid I would hear people you know, uh, correct you if you said well we're going to church. And they would think you're talking about the church building. They say, we don't go to church, we are the church. Well, yes, we are the church, which means we are the assembly. And so if we are the assembly, then we go to the assembly. What we do is assemble. So that's not a wrong use of the word church at all. The church means the assembly of God's people. We've talked about that before. I won't go into that in any greater detail. All right? And so the context in 1 Corinthians about the assembly begins in chapter 11. All right? And it begins specifically in verse 17 when the Apostle Paul says, when you come together. And then in verse 18 he says, when you come together as a church or as an assembly. You could translate the phrase that way from the Greek into English. And he then begins to give instructions. Three more times in chapter 11 this phrase is used. And so we understand that's what's going on in the context. Paul is trying to help the church at Corinth, that messed up church, learn how to worship God appropriately. Chapter 12 we might call the spiritual gifts chapter. And it is relevant to this overall context of the church at worship because many of the spiritual gifts, we'll talk about what that means in a few minutes, that uh, characterized life in the first century church were designed to enable believers to build up their brothers and sisters in Christ or to teach or to translate teaching so that members of the church could understand the Word of God. And so how the brethren exercised these spiritual gifts that they were given was something that was very important to the assembly. And in fact, vital to understanding the book of 1 Corinthians, the church, the ancient church at Corinth was doing a real bad job of exercising their spiritual gifts in the assembly. So that their assembly was chaotic, it was confusing, it was divisive. The folks were, you know, building a pecking order around who were the most important folks in worship based upon which of the supernatural spiritual gifts that they possessed. And Paul says in chapter 12, the end of the chapter, he says, desire the higher gifts. And the context as it leads to 1 Corinthians 14 teaches us what the higher gifts are. The higher gifts are all teaching gifts. And as we get into 1 Corinthians 14, Paul explains why that is the case. Now we get into chapter 13, the love chapter. And the love chapter begins in the first three verses by telling us in so many words, without love, giftedness means nothing. 
And I'm going to say this as an aside. This is not our main point, but it really applies very strongly to 21st century America and to Western civilization and really to the global, growing global culture today that really, really worships talent. We need to absolutely be affirming in every context in which we have the ability to influence people. Talent without love is nothing. It is better to be talentless and to be full of the love of God than it is to be a five-talent man or a five-talent woman and everybody to say, well, isn't he great or isn't she great? And for me to be full of myself and not full of the love of God. I would rather be full of love than to be full of talent. And this is, again, building the platform upon which 1 Corinthians 14 is built. And so we need to understand that there are rules about our assemblies that we must follow. The Bible gives us these rules. We must understand that giftedness is going to be employed in leading the church in worship, even today. And I, again, I'm going to clarify, uh, you know, spiritual gifts and how that has worked and how that works in just a moment. We need to understand that fundamentally, as we come together as a church today, the love for God and the love for our fellow man, Mark 12, 30, and 31, which are the two greatest of all commandments upon which every other commandment what God ever has given is hanged, that, that love has got to be the foundation of what we're doing together when we come to worship God. And if we do that, we'll never have a church split here. We'll never have any kind of strife that can't easily be settled. Enemies don't solve disagreements. Friends do. And that's universally true. And so we need to make sure as we think about love, or as we think about worship, that we build it upon a foundation of love for God and for our fellow man, especially the brethren. Now, we're not going to talk about the chiastic outline of 1 Corinthians 14 this morning. That's a Sunday night subject. And so I'm inviting you with this slide to come back this evening at 6 p.m. because indeed, Paul, by the Holy Spirit, has organized the thoughts in 1 Corinthians 14 chiastically, like an X or like a cross. That's the structure of the chapter explaining to us about worship. We're especially going to look at those points that you see there in a deeper orange there tonight at 6 p.m., and these are very important, so I hope that you can come back with us this evening. Now, let's talk about some terms that we find in 1 Corinthians 14. As you read 1 Corinthians 14 and try to make application of it in your life, in order to worship God acceptably, there are some terms that you're going to meet, need to be familiar with. And I don't know why that got cut off. It wasn't cut off on my screen at home, but it is here. But hopefully you can see that. 1 Corinthians 14 terms, all right? Spiritual gifts. You will find from chapters 12 through 14 the term spiritual gift used in several different passages. And what this referred to in uh, the late 50s AD, when the Apostle Paul wrote this book, are supernatural gifts that had been given to certain members, some members of the church, to enable them to do various things that were important to the spread of the gospel. There were the lesser gifts. The lesser gifts were those such as the gifts of healing, now, there are many people who think, what, gifts of healing? That's, those have got to be the greater gifts. And many false teachers today, and I mean that bluntly, not unkindly, but bluntly, many false teachers today that have a misunderstanding of the whole biblical teaching on spiritual gifts have these great big faith healing meetings, and they lift up these gifts of healing as if those are the greatest things. Listen, Jesus was on this earth for about 33, 33 and a half years before he gave his life on the cross and rose and ascended into heaven. And over the course of that life, he healed relatively very few people. 
His purpose was not to come to earth and heal people's physical ailments and problems. Uh, Hebrews 9, 27 tells us, It is appointed unto man to die once, and after this the judgment. In, in the resurrection, all of our physical problems will be fully and finally and lastingly healed. This life, that's not, that's not the Lord's primary aim. Now, he's still in answer to our prayers, will often heal us and our loved ones. And we all who've been in the church for very long can testify to this, that, that a number of, of us that have had diseases and ailments and our loved ones that have struggled with even long-term ailments have had uh, answers to prayers on many occasions that have strengthened them, healed them, given them longevity of life for much longer than they would have had had we not sought the ear of God on their behalf. But even if you've got a loved one that, you know, you're praying for God, please, my mama, my daddy, my grandma, my granddaddy, aunt and uncle, whoever it is, myself, whoever it is, that you're praying, God, please heal them. And he heals them. And a couple of years later, there's a problem. You pray, God, please heal them. And he heals them. He may do that several times, but we do need to be in, in reality. It is appointed unto man to die once. And after this, the judgment. There will come a time when God will not refuse to answer the prayer, but he will simply say, no, the time has come. And so it was for everyone who was healed by Jesus and by the hands of the apostles upon whom he poured out the Holy Spirit in, in supernatural or miraculous measure. Those upon whom the apostles laid their hands and were given by the Holy Spirit's will the gift of healing powers in the first century. They healed many people, but all of those people later became sick again with some other ailment and died. Everyone who lived in the first century is now dead except for one. Jesus, our Lord alone, rose bodily from the dead and lives forevermore. Amen. All the rest of them died. Gifts of healing are not the primary purpose of God. Now, a little more about this. Specifically, there are only three times in the New Testament we read that the Holy Spirit poured out, he poured himself out on what we might call the baptismal measure, baptism in the Holy Spirit. There's only three times that we read about that happening in the New Testament directly. In fact, two of them are, are we read specifically about the third one as a matter of inference on our part. First of all, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the apostles, giving them the full measure of the gifts, all nine of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are listed in 1 Corinthians 12. And we, in chapter 10, we read about the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the household of Cornelius in order to demonstrate that the Gentiles were acceptable to God as Christians without having to become Jewish proselytes first. The third time, the Holy Spirit was poured out in the apostolic measure on the apostle Paul. There were no other times that the Holy Spirit was poured out directly upon people from the beginning of Christianity until today. Everyone else in the ancient world that had a supernatural miraculous gift received it by the laying on of the apostles' hands. Read about that in Acts chapter 8. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy uh, when he's talking to Timothy about the gift that he received. Paul says, by the laying on of my hands. Hands. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that he has the desire to go to the church in the Rome so that he can impart spiritual gifts to those people there. And so we understand then that by the laying on of the apostles' hands, there were folks in the ancient church that had miraculous gifts. Some were faith healers. Some could speak in tongues. Some could interpret tongues. Some had the word of wisdom. Some the word of knowledge. Others were given the gift of prophecy, which we'll talk about here in just a moment. But seeing as the apostles are now all dead, 
And the office of the apostle is not replaced. The apostle Paul was the very last apostle. Chapter 15, the very next chapter in 1 Corinthians affirms this. Not the subject of our lesson. I'm simply telling you it's so. If you've got a question about that, let me know, and I'll explain to you how we know that's true. That being the case, there is no one who holds the office of the apostle today in the Lord's church, and therefore there is no one to lay his hands upon you and to pass a miraculous gifts on to you. And so the specific use of the phrase gifts, uh, spiritual gifts, in the New Testament refers to these miraculous abilities. Today, though, we often talk about ourselves as having spiritual gifts. Not the same thing. We're talking about natural gifts that God might bestow upon us in the way that he forms us in the womb or in the way that he, the environment he gives us to grow up in, in our family or in our community. It may cause us to develop certain gifts that we can use in ministry to the Lord, and that's fine. And so as we read 1 Corinthians 14 and what it says about worship, we're not having the kinds of folks that have these miraculous gifts like they did, but the principles that these passages teach about how gifts are to be used apply just as much today thinking about, in the general sense, our having these more natural spiritual gifts that God has given us. And I hope that makes sense. All right, a second term in 1 Corinthians 14 is the word prophecy. Prophecy is speaking for God. It is speaking for God. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, the end of the chapter, briefly how that worked. God gave prophets both concepts and the words with which those concepts were to be conveyed. And so he gave them the ideas and he gave them the words so that they could communicate the will of God. And, and these concepts and these words were directly revealed to the prophets by the Holy Spirit, the invisible Spirit of God. Now prophecy throughout the Bible, even from the book of Genesis on, was almost always forth-telling, F-O-R-T-H-telling, rather than foretelling, F-O-R-E, telling. Now when we think about prophecy today, most of us often think about foretelling as kind of the primary understanding of prophecy because many prophecies did foretell something that was going to happen in the future. We know that there are more than 300 specific messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. More than 300 times the prophets before Christ prophesied something about the coming Messiah or the coming Christ. These are 300 reasons why we know that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, right? So, Oftentimes, prophets did foretell some event that was to come. But the primary purpose of a prophet was not to foretell, but to foretell. That is, God didn't give them something in the future that they were going to reveal, but gave them something for now, a teaching that needed to be employed in the people's lives. That's the primary purpose of prophecy. The Bible is the permanent result of prophecy. When you open up the 66 books of the Bible, you are reading the result of of prophecy. This is prophecy. And again, since there are no apostles in the church today, none to lay his hand upon you, and, and maybe the Holy Spirit decide to give you the gift of prophecy, none of us receive direct revelation from God anymore, not until Christ comes again. And so the only way that the office of the prophet or a prophecy functions in the church is by means of the Word. And that's why as that age was beginning to come to a close, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 4 to the apostle, I mean, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, preach the word. And that continues to be the rule in the church today, which with the help of God is what I'm trying to do. All right, a third term this morning, speaking in tongues. This is one I want to spend a few minutes ago on. 
because it's one that has become a controversial issue in the church, really in the last 125 years, last century and a quarter especially. But there have been some instances before that in, it, in which uh, the speaking in tongues issue became controversial as well. Now, first of all, let me affirm what the gift of speaking in tongues was in the ancient church. The, the gift of speaking in tongues in the ancient church was the ability to speak in actual, verifiable human languages that the, the gifted speaker had not studied or received any training in. And, and so, in other words, someone who had the gift of tongues could go to a new city where the people spoke a different language that, that he had never, maybe he never even heard. And the Holy Spirit would give that tongue speaker the ability to preach the gospel in that language. That's speaking in tongues. That's what we read about in the New Testament every time. Tongues, speaking in tongues, the gift of speaking in tongues is being referred to in the New Testament context. That's what's going on in every single case. That's all it was. And that's all it ever was. It would be really nice if we had that gift today, <laughs> you know, because we're striving to be a bilingual congregation because of the, uh, the, the population of the city of Laverne. There's so many Spanish speakers in this city as well as English speakers in this city. If we could manage to be an Arabic-speaking church at the same time, we'd love to do that. We hadn't found a way to do it yet because there's a growing population of, of Arabic speakers in this community. All right, but if we're going to speak in tongues in the church today, guess what we got to do? We've either got to study those languages or we've got to hire somebody who speaks it, right? The, the ancient church didn't have that hurdle to jump through, but God has given us so many resources today that make it a whole lot easier to learn these languages than our brethren had in the ancient world. And so this was a, a, a gift that was given. Speaking in tongues in the Bible does not refer to glossolalia. Now, maybe that, that's a word some of you are familiar with, but it may be a word some of you are encountering for the first time. Glossolalia is not a new thing. In fact, it originated as a pagan practice that was brought into Christianity mainly due to a misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians 13.1. Now, when Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13.1, he says, Now, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love... I'm a clanging symbol, a clanging brass or a clanging symbol, he says. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. He goes on then to say, If I have all knowledge and know all mysteries and have not love, I'm nothing. I told you just a moment ago, the first three verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 are, are a way of saying that giftedness means nothing without love. And the examples that Paul uses in those first three verses are... He compares himself having a level of giftedness that no human being had to love. There were no tongue speakers that spoke with the tongues of angels any more than there were any prophets that had all knowledge. See, he concludes chapter 13, or concludes that section in chapter 13 by saying, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Paul uses the pronoun we, including himself. Every apostle, every prophet prophesied in part. God gave each prophet part of the knowledge of the Word of God. Did the apostle Paul write the book of Matthew? No. Did he write the book of Revelation? No. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, four 
writers. Paul, a fifth. Peter, a sixth. James, a seventh. Whoever wrote uh, the, the Hebrews, an eighth. The, the point is, God never gave any prophet all knowledge. He only gave him a part or her a part. And so Paul is saying, if I, if I have all knowledge and understand all mystery, he's, nobody has that level of giftedness. You see the point? He says, if I have that level of giftedness, which is beyond what any of you folks at Corinth got, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. You see the point? He says to the tongue speakers in Corinth, if I speak with the tongues of men, as many of them did, and of angels, which none of them did, and I don't have love, clanging brass, sounding cymbal, no purpose without love. That's the point. But folks not understanding the context there have misinterpreted that passage. And if you ask a person that comes from a Pentecostal background or a background of charismatic Christianity, and again, let me step aside and say, I'm not condemning these people to hell. I am saying that they're wrong. And if, if there's someone in the audience here today that comes from a Pentecostal background or a background of charismatic Christianity, I'm not trying, please understand, I'm not trying to be mean to you. It's not my job. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to open up the Word of God and, and to tell you what it means, to show you what it means in truth so that we can have a unified practice in the world, in the 21st century world today. I can tell you, we cannot afford as Christians to continue to indulge in being divided because the whole world is united against the cause of Christ. Those who love Jesus have got to get in the Word of God together and, and strive against all pride, against all prejudice, against all, you know, favorite uh, pet doctrines or practices or whatever. We've got to get into the Word of God, and we've got to strive to get together on the same page so that we can go to the world with a gospel with a united front. We can show people the John 13, 35, and 36 kind of Christianity. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. And so, I, I, you know, that doesn't come in the form of us saying, well, just whatever you want to believe goes. Because remember, love for our fellow man is number two. Love for God is number one. And that manifests itself, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, in a love of the truth. And so all I can do is simply open up the Word of God and explain what is the case. Glossolalia has been analyzed by scientists who have taken recordings of the practice of, of this, this, this practice in different churches. Listen, there's a characteristic of all languages. All languages. They, they consist of patterns that repeat. If you were to listen to a recording of this sermon and you didn't speak English at all, and put that in a sound lab somewhere and verify, you know, just, just study this linguistically, you would hear words repeated, sounds repeated, syllables repeated. You'd recognize that there's a discernible pattern. Maybe you wouldn't even know what I was saying, but you could tell when I was saying the same word. You could tell the way that sentences were constructed. All of it has order. Language has order. It follows rules. Words mean things. Syllables mean things and so on. Glossolalia does not follow rules. There are no verifiable, repeatable patterns. It is simply meaningless sounds. Meaningless sounds brought on by the emotions of very well-intended people who love Jesus. 
very well-intended people who love Jesus, who have been misdirected by a culture, a church culture that has trained them in a certain practice that originates from a misunderstanding of the Word of God. Now, that's not all I'm going to say. I want to say a few more things about this because I, I want you to recognize uh, the importance of this. Listen to what Apostle, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 20 through 23. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, listen to Paul's um, conclusion he draws from that ancient prophecy. He says, thus, tongues are a sign for believers, but are not for believers, but for unbelievers. The gift of tongues was a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Let me translate that. Someone who doesn't believe that you're legitimately bringing the message of God, who knows that you've never studied his or her language, and then suddenly you begin preaching the gospel in his or her language, this is an unbeliever that is now strongly being directed in the direction of becoming a believer, right? Never studied the Chinese language in my life. If you drop me by a parachute in, in the land of China and I start preaching the gospel in Chinese, that's a miracle. People that know who I am and know that I know one word in Mandarin Chinese, ni hao ma, it's the only one I know, which means hi, basically, how's it going? Good day to you, something like that, you know? So I use that to greet people that I know speak Chinese, then they assume I speak Chinese and start responding in Chinese, and I'm like, I only know one word, sorry. <laughs> Shouldn't have opened up Pandora's box, but I can't help but do it anyway, all right? So that's why this is a sign for unbelievers. What happens when unbelievers walk into a Pentecostal or a charismatic church? And they hear so many people in the auditorium speaking what they can only conclude is gibberish. What do they say? If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? And these were human tongues, not glossolalia. How much more so is this passage true today? I'm just sharing with you the Word of God. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just asking and folks listening to this sermon streaming online that may come from a background in, in which you have practiced glossolalia, just please, I'm asking you to listen with an open mind. Uh, before I get to that, I want to, this is not on the screen, but I want to go to the text of 1 Corinthians 14. I want you to listen to verses 27 and 28. Listen, please. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. Let him keep silent in the church. And let him speak to himself and to God. Now I want you to go down to verse 32. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So many times in my life I have been in conversations with people that come from Pentecostal or charismatic backgrounds, and they will talk about their experiences. And their experiences are all of, of what is, is called historically being slain in the Spirit. And the idea that they have been taught in the, the church communities, the cultures they've been raised up in, is that the Holy Spirit will come over you and He will take you over. 
You will no longer be in control of, of yourself. And you will begin to speak this ecstatic language without any control. I don't know where that came from. It just the Holy Spirit took over me and I had no control and I began to speak these words. Sometimes folks will get out. You, if you've never been to one of the services, you can definitely see them on YouTube. Folks will get out dancing in the aisles, jumping pews. Folks will be literally, not literally, but figuratively slain in the Spirit. Fall out, faint, because of the level of emotional zeal that is being raised up. And, and they would say that this is, this is the activity of the Holy Spirit who's taken over my body. And this is not without precedent in our history in Churches of Christ. If you're familiar with the Cane Ridge Meeting House and the meetings that took place there, Barton W. Stone involved with those in the early 1800s trying to just be Christians only. But there were people in, in the crowds there that were symbol for that great revival who would start barking, who would fall out, who were practicing glossolalia. It would take a little bit of time for those practices to, to be taught out of people's cultural behavior, even here in the churches of Christ. So we're not trying to be hard on anybody or mean to anybody, but, but if, if you have become overtaken with some spirit, please listen to me. If you have been overtaken with some spirit to the point that you are no longer in control of yourself, I don't know what spirit it is, but I know it's not the spirit of God. It's not God's spirit. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. The one who has the gift of tongues, if there's no one to interpret, is to what? Keep silent. Meaning that these folks who had these miraculous gifts in the first century had control over themselves. The Holy Spirit never took away their self-control. You, you know Galatians chapter 5, right? Verses 22 and forward, which tells us the fruit of the Spirit. It teaches us this is the fruit that the Holy Spirit bears. And there are nine qualities there, just like there are nine spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Galatians 5 gives nine qualities of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the signature of the Holy Spirit. If there is a loss of self-control, I beg everyone, regardless of what religious background you come from, to listen. If there's a loss of self-control, I ain't telling you what spirit's got control of you, but it ain't God's spirit. That is not the way he works. And I wish I could go longer into that this morning, but we're already out of time. I want to summarize the contents of 1 Corinthians 14 which gives us a picture of what God is looking for in our worship services. Remember the song? Help us, Lord, thy love to see. May we all in truth and spirit worship thee. Our aim is to worship God. First and foremost, that's why we're here. Obeying the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds, with all our strength. But you know what God's concern is? Remember the phrases we've been repeating in this series, what God requires, God gives, bow down, rise up to walk. Brothers and sisters, we come to worship God. His focus 
on what he wants out of this worship service is not to get his needs met. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need anything as Paul preached on Mars Hill in Acts 17 because he gives to all life and breath and all things. God is full and complete and we're full and complete in him. We don't complete him. He completes us. And so God's focus in calling us to worship him is actually on us. He wants to invest in us when we come to pour out praise to him. Isn't that beautiful? Help us, Lord, I love to see. When we worship, we are to speak to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who prophesies builds up the church so that the church may be built up. Strive to excel in building up the church. But the other person is not being built up if it's done wrong. In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And when we're worshiping in spirit and in truth, brothers and sisters, anybody who comes in our assembly is convicted, is called to account. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. When that's happening, brothers and sisters, we're worshiping right, and it is acceptable to God. And more than that, it is being effective, effective in accomplishing the biblical aims of worship. And so Paul summarizes, let all things be done for building up. Decency and order, I'm going to save that for tonight because we're out of time. So that's what we'll kick off with this evening at 6 p.m. But I want to just make some applications here, brothers and sisters. The acceptability of your worship to God strongly depends upon your humble desire to bless your fellow worshipers. Stop. Let it sink in. Think about that. Another application. Church is not supposed to be a me-centered experience. I don't come to worship so that I can say, oh boy, I got so much out of that. Or I'm not going to church because I don't get anything out of that. Well, I'll tell you what, you get what you give. And the whole bottom line of 1 Corinthians 14 is that we come together to give. And when we do that, oh, that's when we get, brothers and sisters, it's about giving first, and then you get. That's the example of Christ. It's also the teaching of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And my beloved brothers and sisters, God did not design the worship assembly to be a show. It's not a show. We're here for two purposes, to worship our God and Savior and to build each other up in faith and knowledge and in the courage to conquer another week. And I sure hope that our worship this morning has given you that courage. This morning, if you are subject to the gospel invitation, if you know you're a sinner in need of salvation, the gospel is for you. You can confess your belief in Christ, make the decision to give him your life. We will baptize you for the forgiveness of your sins. This morning, if you're a baptized believer that needs the prayers of the church, come. It's together we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.